Hello and welcome back everybody to the OrthoTalk podcast, episode number 44. This week we're doing something a little bit different. We have a panel of first slash second year medical students along with Minat Patel, who's a recurring guest on the podcast. And uh, we kind of just had this idea to let them bounce questions off us to kind of talk about orthopedics and the process of orthopedics, uh, the job itself, uh, what drove us to the job and uh, kind of answer some of their questions. So panel of med students, uh, just kind of get an overview of the whole profession. Hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, really more of a student-oriented talk, but some obvious advice. Let us know what you think, whether you agree, disagree. Without further ado, here's our panel of medical students. Hey, can we time out? All right, all good dudes, stop what you're doing. This is time out. This is the OrthoTalk podcast. Today we are doing a real conversation with an illustrious guest, Surgeons today are Asith Khalid and Jay Chen, antibiotics, ANSEF, of course, what do we even ask? Fire risk, high due to lit conversations and explosive topics. Any questions or concerns? Nope. All right, we can go. Incision. That was weird. Um, welcome to the OrthoTalk podcast. This is episode number 44, and recording is now in progress. Uh, we've got a very special episode this time. So to celebrate episode 44, I've brought four students on board. Um, they're all uh, MS1 slash soon-to-be MS2 students. Are you guys MS2 yet, officially, or not yet? I think officially we are. You are? All right. They're new MS2 students. Um, they're interested in the field of orthopedics, and we thought we'd do a nice... Uh, student panel a q a panel with the four students and myself dr khalid and dr patel who's a third year resident and a recurring guest so uh, welcome aboard everyone go ahead and introduce yourselves i'm jenny i'm uh, ms2 at utmb so nice to meet y'all i'm siobhan uh also an ms2 at utmb and it's uh, great to be here I'm uh, Keenan Harani. I'm an MS2 here at UTMB as well, and it's good to be here. Joel Fijuku, and I'm also an MS2 here, and I'm happy to be here. Does anyone not want to be here? <laughs> anyone not from UTMB? <laughs> no, no, we're all UTMB tied somehow or another, so UTMB is taking over the world. Um, one quick pop quiz before we start, students. What is this symbol behind me? A staff of... It's like your closet. Nobody knows. Mo, Mo, do you know? The Caduceus. Caduceus. Caduceus, that's right. <laughs> uh, there, there's, a, uh, there's a room in the uh, San Luis Convention Center that uh, we always have. No, it's not in San Luis. It's in oh, sorry. the administrative Oh, sorry. It's in the administrative yeah. building. That's right. And it was called the Caduceus Room or Caduceus Room. And uh, we always had meetings there. So anyway, that was, that was kind of random. But go ahead. Uh, welcome aboard. Ask us any questions you guys have. I guess uh, I could I could start off with the question that I've always had. Um, I've always wondered um, kind of what if you guys could talk a little bit more about like work life balance in terms of residency and being an attending and what your schedules typically look like. All right, Bidot, you want to go ahead and talk about residency? Yeah, it's a it should be a big caveat right at the beginning that it matters a lot on your residency. So there's going to be places where. Um, you'll break every rule under the sun as far as work hours is concerned, and there's going to be places where you don't. I have been stunned to find that there are residency programs where they take no in-house call, like at all, 
over five years. It's all home call. That's ludicrous to me, but the point being that there's a huge spectrum of how much you're going to work. Um, I think work-life balance is a bigger question than that. Um, there's going to be people that work 40 hours a week who tell you their work-life balance is terrible and people who work 100 hours a week who tell you their work-life balance is good. You just have to figure out how to prioritize your own work and life um, activities and kind of mesh them together, I guess. <clears throat> but it's doable. You just have to have discipline and prioritize appropriately. Well, you're a good one to ask because you have a whole family with two kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, you, I do. Uh, are you a good father, Mirad, or are you kind of a crappy one? <laughs> uh, I would like to think of myself as a good father and a maybe crappy resident. Um, no, so at some point you have to, you, you do have to choose, like, you know, you're going to have hours and hours of, there's never, the work never ends, I guess. You can always read, you can always do more questions, you could always prepare more, I guess, for your case the next day. Um, I'm not advocating for not studying, obviously, or not, definitely don't go to the OR without being prepared. That's not really okay. But like, yeah, you come home, at, you know, 6.37 p.m., you're tired, you're cranky, you have your ortho bullets questions or a PDF to read from the day and you know, you're not going to read it because, or I'm not going to read it because I got my kids who I haven't seen all day long and they're going to sleep in an hour. So I'm going to play with my kids and then hang out with my wife and go to sleep. Like if that means I'm a bad resident, so be it. Like, I don't think it does. <laughs> I do just fine on everything, you know, objectively, but that's kind of what it is. Like you have to just understand and prioritize. So he'd be a bad resident either way. He's saying, all right, cool. Um, I think, I think um, you know, the way I think of it, uh, or, or at least in my experience, there, there are some rotations that are much more man manageable than others. So, you know, if you're on a service with a brand new attending, um, such as myself six months ago, you know, who's not that busy yet, uh, you can go 10 weeks straight, averaging 40 hours or 50 hours a week. Um, and then if you're on with an attending that's established and is taking all the trauma call, um, or is a high volume elective surgeon, and who just wants to be busy, you could be averaging 70 plus hours a week. And then when it gets, when it gets really bad, you know, when worse comes to worse, you'll be, there's going to be weeks that you may put in over 90 to hundred hours. Um, but luckily those are kind of temporary weeks. And I think, um, so that's just an idea of, of the hours. And I think in terms of on average, on average for me, I think it was probably between 60 and 70 hours of work per week over five years. I don't know. I don't know what you think, Mo, because we went to the same program. But that's that's kind of what I was thinking. I think. I think and then, um, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I mentioned this on the podcast before, like a month ago. But um, basically, I remember being a student, and I remember uh, there was a resident I was I was shadowing for the night or working call with, and he had a family as well. And he's just basically saying he looked at me as like, you know, I can't be a uh, an outstanding father and an outstanding husband and outstanding resident. Like I can't be the best at all three. It's not possible, but he, he made a decision that he's okay with that, with being like really good at two of them and maybe just okay at another one or, or just kind of okay at all three, but he just kind of had to give himself grace to, to be able to understand that he couldn't do, he couldn't excel at all three. Um, so anyway, those are my thoughts. I think it's important to note that the 60, 70 hours we mentioned is like, actual work hours not everything else that goes into it including the studying and um you know everything else you have to do preparing for cases all that stuff if you if you count all that it's actually a lot more um 
but honestly it, it takes a while to figure out what you need to do and what you don't need to do so the actual hours you're putting in really depends on I guess you know how quick of a learner you are or how long it takes you to actually prepare for stuff um so you know it's you know once you're doing like your fifth bunion of the week you kind of know the situation right so you don't really have to prepare that much but if you're on like a brand new rotation um that has a lot of cases you've never actually done before then it's a it's a little different uh, what do you think like expected hours so mid i kind of brought this up right like if like there's actual work hours that you work but then there's always always like this expected level that you're supposed to work to be a quote-unquote good resident like i feel like there's a big discrepancy there right like like you can always, I mean, I said it, you can always show up more, right? You can always scrub extra cases. Yeah. You always do. You could, you could never stop working if you really wanted to, right? So like, what's, what do you think is the expected work level nowadays? I think, um, you know, I think if you do everything that's assigned to you that, you know, so if you're assigned to attending, you show up to all that stuff, take care of your floor orders and your floor work and um, show up to cases and clinic. If you, I think if you make a little bit of an extra effort to show up, when you're off work just just once in a while i think that kind of establishes your reputation in, in a good way so you don't have to be you know the resident who's always in the hospital never goes home but you also don't want to be the resident who never goes to anything extra or optional so i think you just make a few a few appearances um and really don't do it don't do it for appearance do it in order genuinely to get better at certain skills or to see certain operations that you want to see but i think if you do that just you know a couple times i think that'll that's pretty much what's expected. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, how much do you think scrubbing that extra distal radius really helps you? Like, Jay, you can attest to this now, right? Like, how much do you think that actually helps you in practice? Because I can't remember anything I learned from staying extra for another hour to do another case, and I'm seven, eight months into practice now. Was it really worth it, or are we really just doing this to look good for other people? I think, uh, I think there are some things that if you if you're very specific about what you want to see that you can you can learn you know but but in general you're kind of right I mean you know if you if you add to your caseload by like one percent how much better is it really going to make you probably one percent better but um, but if there's specific things that you want to see I think you can you can pick those up right I mean but it's it's whether you retain that one percent right because like if you're post call and you've been up all weekend and you're staying another hour, like, and you're falling asleep during the case, what are you really doing? You know, just be, use your best judgment. I guess the short answer to your question, 60 to 70 hours per week on average. All right. <laughs> Those are our thoughts. Next question. <laughs> Anyone? I guess the um, kind of sticking to the, like residency, how does like the, like the workload increase like throughout like those five years of residency do they like start you off slow and then like you get up to the 70 hours or do they like they just throw you into the fire i would say the first the worst years are your pgy two and three years probably and maybe not maybe not just in terms of hours but just in terms of you know most programs you you know you do get to go to the or i think utmb does a good job of getting you in the or early um but it's it's hard to get to the point where you're flying through cases and doing them start to finish until you're an upper level. So so when you're PGY two and three, you're doing a lot more of the floor work. And when you are in the OR, you're not even if you're getting to do parts of the case, you're not truly autonomous yet. And I think that's um, that can be a little frustrating. So 
So it's probably the worst, you know, PGY two and three year. Intern year, you're kind of babied a little bit, so it's not as bad. But, um, but yeah. And then four and five is fourth year is great. You get to operate a lot, and you get to uh, it's pretty much pretty much every case is your case to do. And then fifth year, once you get comfortable, you know, I always thought of it as as more of a teaching role at that point. So, you know, I think PGY three is the worst. Mid hot mid hot has it the worst right now. I actually think two is the worst, but actually, like work wise, work wise, two is the worst. Three is just the worst because you're waiting for four, so it's like you're doing some of that same work, but you're you're just at the end of your rope as far as time for doing that. I think it's very dependent on the program too. I think a lot of programs are just structured differently, but in general, I guess two would probably be the worst here in most places. Most places, I think. Uh, and some places do baby the intern, but like it's not even babying. It's just that you don't know what you're doing. So you have to have some knowledge before you're left alone. And so, yeah, second year, you're then trusted pretty much across the board anywhere you go to be left alone. So you are left alone. <laughs> and uh, that's when things hit the fan, you know. I think every year has its own kind of issues, right? I mean, it really stops. It just kind of changes. I think it, get, I think it gets better, but after two. Like well, for us at least. See, if you're if you're talking pure like work hour wise or work effort, <laughs> probably two would be my guess. And the work you're doing too, man. Second year you're seeing all the consults, holding the pager, running around, doing all this stuff. Yeah. Fourth year, at least for us, like you're watching the two run around and do everything and occasionally helping if you take pity or otherwise, but otherwise you're the OR type thing. So. All right, good question. What else we got? Just going off of that, since there is an obvious, pretty big time commitment to residency, do people have time or do you guys know any of your co-residents who did other things while in residency, like in another degree or start a business or do like policy and advocacy? Do you have time for that kind of stuff or it's just learning surgery all the time? You have time. It depends on your effort level and your interest level. So uh, me and Mo, we actually started a, another uh, podcast like we were like, pgy ones and that only lasted like a couple months right mo but uh but i know there are people that uh that do that do other things and it's it's hard to get like a whole nother degree like mba or mpa or anything like that but but it's it's doable there are people that have done it it just just depends on how much uh focus and energy you have like for me when i had spare time you know if i wasn't at home uh with the family i'd, I'd just be at the gym and i spent plenty of time there so there's, you know, if I, if I weren't so gym oriented and if I were more oriented towards like productive stuff, I probably would have had the time to, to hit it big and be rich, but you know, priorities. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's, it's all about what sacrifices you want to make in your life. Right. I mean, the time you spend doing something is going to be time away from something else. So I mean, yeah, you, you have time to do other stuff, but the question is, do you really want to, and <laughs> do you have the effort to do it? Like if I, if I tried to get an MBA during residency, it would probably mean like a lot of self-care kind of stuff went away to the wayside. And I don't know, that stuff's pretty important too, especially for a five-year ruling kind of residency. I mean, honestly, our residency program is not as like, not as tough as a lot of places in the nation. And there's probably a lot of people that will hear 60 to 70 hours a week on average and kind of laugh at us. But like, it's, you know, it, it would, it's the same thing. It, it really depends and, um, you just kind of have to assess each program like it is. I, I don't know of any that have like a 
like another degree tracked into the residency. I, actually, I do. There's some that are like six-year programs, right? But they're not, they don't, you don't get a PhD or anything, I don't think. I think you just do a research year. You get the opportunity to do research for a year. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know about like MBAs or MPHs and stuff. I, don't, I haven't heard of any. You can do whatever you want. Everything has trade-offs. As simple as that. All right, who's next? I guess I can ask uh, one more that I've always been curious about. Um, what do you guys like most about orthopedic surgery? Hmm. Hmm. It's tough. <laughs> Is it tough because there's so much uh, to like? Or... <laughs> I can I can start. There's two things that I like the most. One is that I have I have fun. I've always had fun um, at work, and I hate when I'm not having fun at work, which can be you know attending dependent or situation dependent or whatever. But like, I'm friends with the people that I work with. That atmosphere is generally good. Like I met Mo and Jay playing basketball at the gym and things like that, and we became friends outside of the OR. It just translates into the it translates into work if you're friends outside of work, right? Not that you need to be friends with all of your colleagues, but that's just one thing that I like is that the environment's generally fun and positive and if it's not i would suggest you're in the wrong place um and then two when i was an intern sorry intern first year at utmb you can do that month where you can do an ortho elective right as a first year which is actually really rare but uh, i was with stevenson um female stevenson joint stevenson and um someone walked in a clinic with a walker and she like just looked up on the computer and watched them walk in and then she turned to me and she was like that's really cool because they came in on a wheelchair six weeks ago. I mean, that, that kind of satisfaction. And I've got friends now that are, you know, i got a buddy that's a vascular surgeon, friend that's the hospitalist. And he told me the other day, he's like, yeah, we don't get that kind of satisfaction where someone comes in with problem A and you fix it and they walk out without it. So that's something that I don't think you get in a lot of other fields. So I guess this question is a lot tougher now for me because um, a lot of stuff I liked that have kind of become dislikes now. But I guess the one thing that hasn't changed as far as what I like about it is, one, I think the, I think the cases are still generally fun to do. Uh, there's a good diversity in cases that you can do if you want it. Um, you know, you can operate all around the body, really. Um, there's different types of cases, different techniques, different, um, you know, different ways to do things. I, th I think all that is still probably the best part of this field is the actual cases that you get to do. Um, you know, if you want to scope a knee, you scope a knee, that's a different skill set than if you want to fix a fracture. They're two completely different skill sets, um, use completely different tools. You don't get that really in a lot of other specialties. So for me, that would be the one thing I think that's kind of maintained throughout everything is just the cases. Yeah, I think... Uh... I agree with that. Just you know, what, what attracted me to orthopedics in the beginning was just uh, when I was a medical student, seeing seeing the attending and the residents put together broken bones, and um, I just thought it was really cool and, and kind of badass. And uh, you know, I was into cardiology at the time, which is the biggest nerd specialty I can think of at this point in time. Um, but so now, now as an orthopedic surgeon, just just getting the piece together broken bones and um, and fixing things. I think that doing the cases is probably the best, the most satisfying thing. And it's just such a different specialty than everything else, 
right? I mean, it's like you don't really get taught it in med school. You don't really get an idea of what the specialty is unless you do that elective. And it's just so, it's such a completely different field than a lot of things because it's it's less based on like, I guess it's more based on physical and mechanical principles in a lot of places or a lot of yeah. Well, a lot of medicine is not tangible. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I really struggled with the, uh, the specialties that I couldn't physically see or touch or interact with. Um, on more than a theoretical level. So like in cardiology, they're talking about these like fluids and uh, electrolytes and I'm looking at numbers and it's just like, like kind of nonsensical in a way. It just, it doesn't have that intrinsic satisfaction as seeing something broken and putting it back together. Yeah, the principles are so simple, right? I mean, like this piece of bone goes to this piece of bone and that's where it should be. And then how do you fix it there, right? It's so simple, but it's really complex and there's a lot of ways to do it. There's a lot of different biomechanical principles that go into it. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah, it, at surface level, it's putting one piece of the bone back to the other. But, you know, if you, when you get deeper, if you want to get deeper, some people don't, but there's so many different like nuances to it too. I don't know. It's, it's a very unique specialty. There's, there's nothing like it. Like no other field in medicine is, is like orthopedics. Like I said, I can... Mo, Mo, would you uh, would you do it all again, orthopedics? I wouldn't do medicine if I couldn't do orthopedics. I think I've said that before. Yeah. If I could not do this field, I probably would have left medicine. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. I don't know if I would have left medicine, but I would have done something that was not as fun or cool. And I would have just, uh, I don't know, probably would have been home more. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like if, if it wasn't, for being in this field, I don't know, like, would anything else really be fun? Or is it just a job at that point? Like, I mean, I would finally probably find something in medicine that would just be cashing a check, you know, and no offense to whoever I'm about to, actually, you know what, I'm not going to mention anything. I'm going to be good today. <laughs> no, no, don't be a good dude. No, no, no. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything. No. <laughs> would you have said anything? You know? Say that again, I'm sorry. Would you have stayed in medicine? Uh, only if it, I don't know. I don't think so. I probably would have tried to do something procedural and then bowed out yeah. eventually. Yeah, probably the same. So when did you decide to go into ortho? When did you make that call? Honestly, I don't know that I ever wasn't trying to do that. So you came in one. I don't really have like it's funny because people want like these epic stories for their personal statements and stuff like that. I don't really have one. Yeah, like, you know why I came to med school? It's because my parents your audio cut out. So I was saying, yeah, me neither. I don't have any good story or anything. Yeah, like I I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I thought it would be fun to do. Um and it has been so no complaints here but i liked the people that was the one thing i perpetually liked the people that i met mostly since i've met more people i can't say i like all of them but won't take any names you all know what i'm talking about maybe but <laughs> but uh, yeah like my first people that i met were you guys um joint stevenson punch bobby bill white so, like just people that are awesome people to work with and be around so it's like oh yeah i want to work with these people be around these people from the beginning 
So let me ask you this then, since someone else is going to ask this probably. What's, what is like, what, what, how would you describe like the personality of an orthopedic surgeon that attracted you to this? Like, okay, let me, oh, let me yeah. phrase it better. Let me phrase it better. <laughs> let me phrase it better. What sort of personality traits make a successful orthopedic surgeon? I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question, but um, also I know you're trying to get me in trouble with the woke police. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. Um, it's personality traits, right? I think there's uh, I think it's I, fair to say that there's some personality traits that make a successful surgeon. Like Jay and I were talking about this the other day. I think being able to hold yourself accountable for mistakes is a very important factor in being a successful, not just orthopedic surgeon, but any surgeon, right? Because we were talking about how you can be good surgically, you can have a good personality, be a team player, but if you're not willing to accept mistakes that you make, and you're one of those type of people that doesn't like to confront your own errors, that's to me, at least this is what I was saying, to me, that's an unsafe surgeon. Because when things go wrong and you have complications, if you bury your head in the sand, that's a big deal, right? Instead of, you know, kind of accepting it and doing the right thing. So I'll start there. That was, that was one thing that I said. Yeah. So I think, I think there has to be a level of um, confidence in your own abilities balanced with uh, humility that things can and will go wrong um, and that you have to keep learning. If you're unwilling to keep learning or changing, then you're in the wrong place. Um, and that anyone can make it as long as you have the right drive to do a good job for your patients. I think as long as you really want to do a good job for your patients, then all of the other stuff will be okay. Um, there are people that are like personality wise, there are people that are loud and quiet and assertive and not assertive. And, you know, there's all these different kinds of people, but at the end of the day, they all, the ones that are quote unquote successful from my opinion, which again, I'm not really qualified to define what successful or unsuccessful is. They wanted to do a good job for their patients. And so underneath all of those other differences that drove them to be humble, to hold themselves accountable, to learn how to do better and to be better and to keep learning, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not a team player, I don't think you can do well at this job, period. So maybe that's one absolute. Like you are not going to be doing this job successfully by yourself. Like yeah. it's impossible. So, yeah. no, or any job probably, but this one for sure. Yeah. I agree. I think uh, you need the right balance of determination uh, mixed with humility and, uh, and being a team player. I think, uh, I think if you have the right balance of those three things, then you'll do really well. You know what residency is like? Or one of the things that happens in residency all the time, and I've heard the same thing for an attending, is every time you think you're getting good at something, the job's going to slap you in the face. It's hilarious. Like, you finally put in your, like, fourth or fifth nail in a week, and then you're like, all right, the sixth one, I'm ready. I know how to do this. I'm going to get my start point in a couple of tries. It's going to be great. And that case is going to slap you across the face and humble you immediately. It's like clockwork. Every time you think you get good at something, something true. happens and you're like, oh, just kidding. So you need the determination to get you past those times. And you need the humility to get you to keep you grounded for when you're doing well. And then, uh, of course, being a team player always helps. So. All right, so let me let me list some personality traits then, and you guys tell me how important you think these are. So let's start with intelligence. Like one to five, or one to ten, or sure, one to ten. Why not? I mean, I don't know. I'm like a three on that scale, so like <laughs> probably not very important. <laughs> There's the. Have you ever heard of Angela Duckworth? Yep. 
Yeah, you're, you're talking about grit. I don't know if we ever talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that intelligence as a baseline characteristic matters as much as grit does. But uh, so when she talks about that. So you think grit's pretty important? I think it's the most important. I think if you don't have that, you're not getting through this job. Not without drugs or something, because I don't know how you could otherwise. So define grit then for people who don't really know. At least how, how Doug like, defines it. Is I it? think the way that, I don't remember her exact definition, but essentially it's the ability to persevere through challenges. Um, the long and short of it. Yeah. What about, um, we talked about teamwork, like being a team player. Um, what about kind of talked about perseverance already where are are some other like factors people talk about for surgeons what about hand skills how important i was about to say you have to have some concept of like spatial awareness like you can't do the job if you can't tell up from down and you know left from right like you can't be fumbling around forever you got to figure out how to use your hands and things like i think that's something you can learn yeah I would say for 90% of people, yeah. Like I always say 10% of people are naturals, 10% of people will never get it, and then 80% of people are in the middle and can be taught. So probably so you see that in residency, people. right? Yeah. You said residency. There, what was the guy? Nick Vance. Mm-hmm. I never saw that dude struggle ever, ever. Like he just could do it. I've got a classmate like that too. He never struggles. He's lazy because he didn't have to be. He doesn't have to not be lazy. Yeah. Like he can be lazy and do just fine. What else? What, what else do people say are important surgeon characters? What about communication? Yeah, I would say, yeah, you know, there's this nebulous quality EQ, and uh, that's one of the most important things. You know, that kind of goes goes with communication, but basically how you interface with patients, how you interface with colleagues and attendings. Um, that's, it can, if you have, if you know how to interface with people, that can hide a lot of, you know, not hide mistakes, but it can really change perception in a lot of scenarios. Yeah, so that's kind of the, the older, like, stereotype of surgeons where that they're kind of gruff and, you know, short-winded and don't have the bed, best bedside manner. I think that is a very, like, old stereotype now, and you can't, you can't do that, you know. Like, nowadays, you can, there's, there's just too many options. And if you ask me, I think the reason people were allowed to get away with that in the past was because there just weren't enough surgeons to, to go to like people didn't have a choice, but I'm telling you now, like if you're, if you're rude to people, then it comes around, you're, you're not going to be in business long. You just can't, this is as much of a a hospitality service as as it is a medical service nowadays. It really is. There's that, remember that other saying that, uh, what was it? You can be, you can be nice, but dumb you can be nice and smart you can be like smart and an asshole but you can't be dumb and an asshole or something like that right i mean that to get through residency probably but to get like be a successful orthopedic surgeon i don't think you can be an asshole at all anymore i don't don't know people there's too too small of a community now especially if you're not in a big city you know but maybe both like honestly even if you're in a big city because there's so much competition around you why would they go to you if you're a jerk right and if you're in a small town then you definitely can't be a jerk because i mean you're the only one there people are just going to go elsewhere i don't i think there's too much competition nowadays 
Plus, you shouldn't be a jerk to begin with. I mean, forget the competition. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, my advice for anyone coming in, don't be an asshole. Like, everything else, <laughs> come and go, plus my, just don't be, don't be rude to people around you as much as possible, anyways. Sometimes nurses really, really tempt you, but try your best. Yeah, we, we, not just nurses. Other people, other people, not just nurses. No, we we've all been there. Yeah, you're That's right. Not just other attendings, right? I've gotten into it with emergency room attendings when I was a yeah. Other services, yeah. That's all I was gonna say. Other services. With the temptation is always there to be angry. Man, I, I did it like today, right? I was on my on my bike working out, and then the answering service calls me about like some other surgeon's patient. Not not an orthopedic surgeon, like a gastroenterologist. And I'm like, sorry, this is orthopedics, but I just I mean I hung up before I could get in. <laughs> <laughs> you you learn some yeah, stuff. Yeah, like yeah. Sometimes they'll call you because you're the only one who picks up the phone or you know, blah blah blah. But that's also part of not being a dude just picking up the phone. Um, yeah, that's part of being humble too, right? I mean, like <laughs> it it's it's kind of weird. Like you get so much of your time taken away from you that when other people unnecessarily take up your time, it gets so frustrating. You know, like like BS consults that they give you or like calling you about the wrong stuff, calling you for medicines that they can easily figure out themselves, like all that stuff. It's, it's so weird. I don't know. It, it's so frustrating. At least it was for me. And it was really just because I'm so used to like having my time taken away from me by actual work that any other intrusion into my personal time is just really, really frustrating. Hmm. Maybe you have right. questions from these med students. Maybe we should have been anonymous. That way they could actually ask what they wanted to ask. Listen, I'm not going to remember any of you guys. Don't worry. You can still apply to Phoenix. God free. Nobody will care. Uh, so you guys are talking about stereotypes. I know there are obviously stereotypes for every specialty, uh, definitely for orthopedics. Have you guys noticed in your time in, as orthopedic surgeons, the kind of like demographic or fields or stereotypes change as things get people or hopefully the field's getting like more diverse or inclusive or empathetic? I, I think Jay and I were lucky because we went to a very diverse program. Um, so we didn't, I mean, look, we were, Mira, you were the same thing, right? We, you and I both went to med school in Texas and applied mostly through Texas schools. There was definitely a very like white male lean towards a lot of the Texas programs, especially when I was applying. Like I applied All to the South, not just Texas, but I keep going. Yeah, but Texas, especially, at least for me, it was like, there's multiple programs I applied to that had like one female president in the history of their program at the time. Token. Yeah, basically. So, um, no, it was definitely there. As far as whether it's gotten better, I, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I've been out of it for a couple of years now. But um, it seems like it's gotten a lot better. I, you know, it depends who you ask to and what their thoughts of it would be. Obviously, I don't think we're really a representative mix in orthopedics. Talking to two two brown dudes and an Asian guy. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Jay's Jay's in it a lot more. He's seen more people come through in the last year, so he's probably the one to ask. Yeah, I think uh, looking just by pure numbers, you know, things haven't really changed that much since since I've been in orthopedics, which has been about seven years or so. Uh, but what has changed is the discussion, and it's it's something that 
that a lot of people are are talking about now and um, there's a lot more awareness being being given to to diversity in orthopedics and it's you know, probably a lot of it is because of the online stuff that's going on on twitter um but i think a lot more attention is being given to it which means that hopefully there will be uh, some change in the future at some point in time as of now i haven't seen a whole ton of change play out yet but uh but first there's there always has to be discussion before meaningful change so so maybe something we'll see in the future um I will say this too. I mean, the, the the stereotypical, the the pure stereotype of, of an orthopedic surgeon is from back when I was in medical school, is basically just like this beefy, you know, dude who like doesn't really think too much, uh, just kind of like a Neanderthal. Um, and I, I think in a lot of ways that, you know, since I've been in it, that is not. I wouldn't say that's the norm. I would say most people are not like that. Um, I may be more like that than most people actually, unfortunately. But I would say that a lot of my colleagues are uh, quite intelligent, very well spoken, and they don't play the role of the of the dumb jock, even though it's a role that I relish. But but um, but I do think that things are kind of they're they're not they're not that stereotype. Um, yeah, I think the access has improved a lot, though. Wouldn't you say like like there's no one on this panel that couldn't get into orthopedics based on their personality or their skin color or their um, and gender right like that that you couldn't say that 10 years ago at least i don't think you could have yeah in a lot of ways mo do you feel like you were fighting an uphill battle when you were a student yeah 100 percent. but also i mean that could that's my own anecdotal evidence right like whether there's any numbers i mean do you even need there are numbers brown people were there in orthopedics when i applied there, there weren't that many so i, I don't know i think I was going to say, you, you'll definitely find, especially if you interview throughout the South, that there's not going to be a lot of people that look like you, basically. Um, I remember after applying for a while, I felt, and this might piss the police, police off, I don't know, but I felt like after applying, going through the process, there was a lot of pressure to basically look and act more white, basically. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. Um, and I went, I was heavily through the South and stuff like that, so that's probably why. Um, I will say throughout the process, I did the, I actually did the opposite of that. This is all afterwards. I was very, very clear about who I was and what was important to me, my family, et cetera, et cetera. So I was myself basically when I interviewed, I didn't do any of that. So I'm at somewhere that is like, diversity is not even an issue. We don't bring it up because it's not even something worth talking about. Like, it's like kind of most at a UTMB, like there is no, there is no um, stereotypes. Yeah, it's just, everybody's different. Like that's just how we are and I love it. And so now I don't feel that way anymore. But I did after interviewing, especially throughout the South. Um, so I think it's probably changing and getting better because these conversations weren't happening as far as I know. Um, the publications and the things in the journals and things like that, they weren't happening back two, two years ago, literally two years ago. So it means um, more than that, too, you couldn't even make the comments that we're making today, right? Like you couldn't say that stuff at all. Like, yeah, I mean, maybe I'll get in trouble, but nobody wanted that. Either. You know, it's, I think it's definitely. I don't know. I think it's definitely changed a little bit. I mean, we're not... I just, yeah. I'm a really big believer that none of that stuff should matter. Like, I realize that's impossible. Wait, like, we can't all apply. We can't all apply to residency with the same name and leave the ethnicity thing blank and not have pictures, but that's how it should be, if that's what it takes. You know what I mean? Like, none of that should matter. It literally shouldn't matter because we should all be judged based on our competence and our, you know, personality, whatever, but not on 
like race, gender, ethnicity, none of that should be important. I mean, it should be equal, I guess. That's why people say it. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. You think it should be meritocracy? <laughs> yeah. Should it be based on that? No, no decision should be influenced by that whatsoever. That was a good question, though. What else we got? What scares you guys about going into orthopedics? Matching. Yeah. If we're being honest. <laughs> One person can say matching. Still scares me. <laughs> it's been two years. I'm not over it yet. Uh, yeah, I think for me, definitely matching, especially considering that for the first two years of preclinicals, uh, it's all pass-fail. And then step one just changed to pass-fail. So trying to figure out how to really distinguish yourself from the rest of the people applying, I think that's the most. What do you all think of that? At this point. But anyways, continue. <laughs> how do you all feel about pass-fail step one? Good, bad, indifferent? Does it matter? I think we'll make like, you know, that summer between MS2 and MS3, like a lot less stressful, right? But then like, if like, if everything shifts onto like step two, like CK, like you can like build up your application, like for a specialty. And then that one test, like right before you apply is just going to like knock you out of consideration. So, I mean, there's like, there's like, yes, less stressful, but then now I'm like thinking about step two CK and like, you have to really like knock that one out of the park now. I think you need to like consider taking it earlier, like end of uh, year three in order for it to be used uh, once you apply. So there's that factor also. Good point, because we always took it, at least I think we took it like the end of year three, which really means, you know, in y'all's timeline, you would just get your score back right as you're applying, like right, right when you're in the middle of the way rotations for entering year four. So that kind of, that kind of sucks. That really sucks. Like, the, the way it was for me, and Jay probably, but for me, I could take it after I submitted my uh, rank list or match list. So, like, I didn't study for it at all because <laughs> my step one, I didn't want to screw up my step one score. Like, it was good enough. I put in the work for step one and did all my ways, got my letters, submitted my list. And nobody could change where they ranked me. I took the test and didn't do great on it, but I passed, so... That mindset doesn't apply anymore. If anyone says, should I take step two, the answer is yes. So that, I don't even think that's a question anymore. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I simplify things too much, but everything is a trade-off, like in life at this point, but also in our, like in our job and what we're doing. So you traded stress um, and challenges with studying during the first two years for increased subjectivity throughout the application You're going to eliminate metrics, you're going to use subject metrics. Um, and that's how it is. So that's the trade off. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a. I would much rather have objective metrics than subjective metrics, but it's not my decision. So I'll tell you the one thing that isn't going to change is the competitiveness of the orthopedic applicant. So, I'm just going up. Yeah, it's. it's Did you look at app pro profiles this year, Jay? I, <laughs> I don't mean to scare people, but like. If any, if to, I tell people at this point, like, and I know this is ludicrous and people laugh at me, but like, I would heavily consider doing a research year, heavily, like, yeah. especially, especially if you think that you're a, a poor applicant for whatever reason, like if you have bad exam scores or you haven't been able to make an impression at your own department or you could only do one AI because of your school calendar or whatever. 
And again, I know I'm sitting here having gone through it, having not done it. And, and yeah, the number of years just adds up and adds up. But man, I just, there are so many people doing it now, like, and it, it actually does add a lot of value and a lot of networking that I think it's something to at least heavily consider. Not that you should do it or that it should be an absolute thing, but. Um, I think, uh, I think maybe the certain applicant, a very specific type of applicant should, should and could benefit from it. But uh, I don't think most people should consider it actually. I think if they're, you know, if they're, if they're pretty confident in their, their score and uh, they're relatively personal. They don't have any scores, Jay. They're all past fail. Well, I know, but if they, if they know that they're a solid test taker and they, yeah, if they have confidence going in. Um, oh, you're talking about step two. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Obviously, you don't know your yeah. score until it's too late and you're already applying. But at the same time, if you know that you're doing well in the, the class exams and you're you're picking up the material, you, you can be pretty confident that you'll do okay on it, I think. And then if you've got a good personality, if you put in the work uh, with research over a few <laughs> years, I, I don't think I would push people to do research years unless, unless they're telling me that, look, I really am a crappy test taker. I know my test score is not going to be average and I, I need something really strong to supplement it. Then I'd be like, yeah, sure. And also, you know, if, if they say that they're not really that confident in their, um, their clinical abilities also, then I'd be like, yeah, you should probably beef up something. So you have something that's above average. Yeah. The competitiveness has gone crazy. Like it's, it's kind I mean, of, what is it? One in one in three don't match. Yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. I definitely wouldn't match right now. I was like an average applicant when I applied. Like right now, I'd be like bottom of the barrel. The good yeah, news is I the Orthodox podcast has a 100% match rate for medical students. So before it's a two for two, baby. <laughs> two for two, one for one. Oh, uh, we're one for one. <laughs> one, for one. But be five for five. Pass fail. Pass. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't even know what advice to ask people on matching anymore, except for, uh, yeah, I'm, I really got to be careful. I come on here, I talk too much, but like, nepotism is the single most important thing you can have. So, or networking, as other people call it. But basically, it's nepotism. So, get to know as many people as you can, shake as many hands as you can, put a name to the face as often as possible in as many situations as possible, and that will help you. Nepotism has such a bad connotation. I don't mean it that way, but that's seriously what it is, though. It's like getting to know people. And at this point, I think the Twitter thing is useless too, because I see like 16 different people every day saying, welcome, I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm applying this year. No, Twitter thing yeah, is You're, you're yeah, in a pool yeah, of yeah. like 300 yeah, people. Yeah. Like if you have a paper, go and present it at meetings, shake the hands of the lecturers, come up with insightful questions and go and ask the lecturers afterwards. So then a couple of months later, you can shoot them an email. And then a couple of months after that, I can be like, hey, I remember you from that meeting six months ago. It's good to see you. And that day is interview day and they remember you. And that's an important thing to be able to do. Like, so that's also doubles the value of research, right? Being able to go present stuff at conferences. So if you start early, get some projects done, um, make a poster or two, and then you can go. Dude, you can you can how many Jane? How many times have you presented the same poster at different conferences? Uh, I think there's one poster I presented at like three or four conferences. Yeah. <laughs> you can just you just travel. You don't need. Them. We're not. You just find one and blind places, and there you go. And when you're a medical student, research sucks. It's like the worst. Seriously, it's really, really hard to start doing it. It's hard to find somebody that's doing it seriously. And you will put in hours and hours and hours of work on 10 different projects. And if you're lucky, one of them will stick. I speak from experience. So I didn't present anything. 
ever, even despite lots of trying and lots of hours and effort put in. So the only solution I have to that is keep trying because you'll get lucky and people do get, I say get lucky, but you'll find the right resident or the right project or the right person at the right time or whatever, and that'll happen. But you have to keep trying. These guys are all doing research with me, so that's not a concern. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Well, I didn't have Dr. Chen at the time. <laughs> I did actually, but we couldn't go anywhere with what we were doing because we uh, nobody knew how to use. Nobody knew how to use that. Oh yeah, uh, video yeah. software yeah. thing. Yeah, but if I had tried harder, I'm sure something could have come of it. Yeah. We also had 17 people my year, man. It was just ludicrous. Like, 17 is a lot. We had 12. We had 12 and 10 matched. I had three for my class in med school and two matched. Wow. Yeah. University of North Carolina. Primary care for life. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. All right. What else? Probably got time for a few more questions. Yeah, sorry. You guys should be driving the conversation, not us. We talk all the time. You guys have any questions about like life after residency? Yeah, how was that like, you know, like first couple years after residency, that that transition to full attending? Ooh, talk to Jay first. Um, I don't know. I think uh, first week is really weird, especially for me because I went back to where I trained. So it's um, it was a little weird to be back in the same ORs with the same staff, and all of a sudden they're looking to time out and they're looking for you to confirm timeout and stuff and but uh that that got i got over that pretty quickly after like a week or so but hardest thing is uh dealing with your own um with your own complications yeah i think i think everything else is not i mean it, it's a transition you got to figure out your own sets you have to figure out like your schedule um how you want your clinics to run your preferences for the or and all that stuff but that's all that's all pretty doable in an academic setting um i don't have to worry about hiring people i don't have to worry about finding PAs. I don't have to worry about really marketing myself that much. Um, but I think the, the biggest challenge uh, has been, and remains, remains to be kind of when, when you have like a bad OR day or you have like a, a couple clinic patients that are unhappy, um, it's just mentally being able to deal with that. That's been the, the biggest, uh, biggest challenge. I think the schedule opens up a lot in a way in terms of just having more control over your own schedule. Um, when you're a resident, you have to be everywhere your attending is and you have to be there even when your attending's not there if you want you there um, you have to pre-round on, on certain occasions you got discharge patients you got to do all the floor work um, as an attending you know my schedule is a lot more up to me so I was able to get LASIK surgery last Friday um, a couple days ago congrats dude yeah and uh, I never would have like you know, like in residency I never you have this almost this like pressure you put on yourself not to take too many personal days you know so um i didn't really take care of my health in terms of going to the doctor and getting things checked up and and stuff like that but as an attending i don't feel bad at all about taking a half day or or a day off and um yeah so i think it's a lot more liberating in that sense i totally agree like when i when i hit attending status like I went to the dentist, got all the root canals that had like been pushing off in residency. Uh, you could afford them. I found a primary care doctor. I had some blood work done. Like all the stuff that we yeah. sacrifice our own bodies for five years. Like I, I took like 
two sick days, all of residency, and it was to get back surgery because I couldn't take call anymore because my back was killing me so bad. Like, <laughs> was, that's, that's like the most time I took off in residency. And it shouldn't be like that. It really shouldn't. No, I, I, having control of your schedule is probably one of the most refreshing things of coming out of training. Um, it's nice to be able to take time for yourself and uh, especially, you know, if you're employed or if you're academic, like me and Jay are, um, it's, it's nice because you don't have to really worry about that side of stuff. If you're private, um, you know, it's, it's your money. So if you're not working, you're not making money, but it's, you know, you live with that and you do what you want. Um, I totally agree about the complication stuff. That's probably the worst part about it. Um, no amount of training can really prepare you for it. Uh, Cause even if you're training and you get a complication, it's not really yours. It's, it's a different feeling knowing that you did that to someone and having to sleep with that at night. Um, it's tough. I think there's a lot of mental side of being an attending that you don't get taught in residency. Um, there's a lot of mental trauma that comes with the two, you know, with operating. And, you know, I mentioned before stuff that I thought was fun that isn't anymore. And honestly, a lot of the operating stuff now is like that. Cause I dread what comes through my clinic sometimes. Like there'll be days where, you know, you, you, let's say you do 10 carpal tunnels, nine of them come back great. And then the one that doesn't, it's like a superficial wound infection or like, you know, continued pain and tingling just ruins it, you know, it ruins your week. So sometimes you get lucky and, uh, it feels like you get lucky when things go right nowadays. It's so sad. Um, but that's a, that's a really tough part. And I don't know, there's no real way to make that better. Like, it's just part of being a surgeon. That's what we talked about, the personality traits of a good surgeon. Um, you have to have some sort of level of mental toughness to kind of be able to have a short memory with some stuff uh, and kind of get back to it and adjust. Um, what else is good? I'll, I'll try to stay on the good stuff. Uh, the pay is good. Hard to be worse. Hard to be worse. Yeah. Um, that, that definitely helps. Uh, the paperwork sucks. I feel like there's more paperwork as an attending than there is as a resident, believe it or not. Um, even, if it's, even if it's just signing stuff, like, like I have it set up to, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to get myself in trouble. Paperwork sucks. It takes time. Um, I, I, think, I think with the paperwork, when you're a resident, you, you got 50 notes to write, let's say, you just try to get them done. You don't really care as much about, I mean, you care about accuracy, but if there's like a small typo, you don't care. But then as an attending, when those 50 notes get sent to your inbox, you actually have to read all those notes thoroughly and make sure there's not anything egregious. So that's why paperwork seems to be harder as an attending, I think. It's not just the notes. It's also like signing documents, signing insurance forms, signing disability forms. I come like after every clinic, I come to my desk with like six different folders of stuff to sign. And it takes me another 30 minutes, 45 minutes of my day just to sign things. And I'm not even like most of the time I'm not filling things out. Like I have, you know, one of my MAs to help me with that, but just to physically sign things takes forever. Um, and then you got to worry about other stuff like, you know, your OR schedule, your clinic schedule, stuff that nobody really teaches you because you see so much of it. Uh, you see a lot of different attendings do things a lot of different ways. Um, so you don't, you know, there's no one way to do it. So uh, my recommendation for that is find a res or find an attending who has a similar personality to yours and see how they do it. Cause that's probably going to be the way that works best for you. 
uh, the way I structure my clinic is going to be different than the way Jay structures his clinic. Like if, if I ran his clinic, it wouldn't really work for me because, you know, we just we function different ways, right? Same thing with surgery schedules. The way I structure my surgeries are very specific because um, the timing has to work out for different things. So uh, that stuff comes with experience. It's not, it's not really a bad thing. It's just different, you know? It's like when you're second year, you worry about how to answer a page, how to see a console. When you're an attending, you worry about just different stuff. So um, it's, it's, like I said, it's just different. It's not bad, not good. Um, what else is good about being an attending? Um, actually getting an operate is nice sometimes. Um, like being the one to actually make, make decisions and do that. Uh, is nice because you live with your consequences, which is good and bad, like I talked about, but at least you're the one who does the action. So you don't have to worry about what someone else is doing. Um, same thing with consults. The decisions you make on consults, usually nobody's second guessing you. So uh, that's a lot different than residency where everyone is second guessing you all the time. And that gets really old really fast. Um, what else? Jay, what else do you think? Um, there's, there's a lot of good things, uh, getting to teach is great. I think, uh, I, I will highlight something about the field though, that you were talking about is, is, uh, one thing that's a little different about surgical field than something that's more, more shift work is like, you don't really, it's really hard to, to leave work at, at work, you know, when you're at home, um, you know, things pop up at all, at all times that, that they look to you for an answer for. Um, so I don't know. I, sometimes I think it'd be easier if I were like, you know, if I were able to clock in and out and just kind of, you know, I would take care of my patients for eight hours. And then after that, they weren't my patients anymore. Um, but for, for a surgeon, everything you do, your patients, they, they follow you and they see you every few weeks. And it's a little bit harder to, uh, to separate that out. Yeah. I think it's, part of the, it's part of the mental stress, right? Like if, yeah. if that side of it doesn't, you don't think you can handle it then i mean i think you really need to consider shift work like something like anesthesia or emergency medicine something like that because there's a big mental toll to it like you you don't just walk away from from work with this job and i think it's any surgeon really um that stuff follows you home mentally it always does like i, I mean i'm sure we both lost sleep over stuff um stayed up late at night thinking about stuff like that, that stuff wears on you for sure that's unique to surgery, I think, or you know, any anything where you're not just clocking in and out. All right, let's get one more question and then then we'll call it. Uh, when and how did you all, I guess, decide what specialty within orthopedics you wanted to do? I. Uh... I thought I wanted to do foot and ankle surgery. Um, well, I guess I'll start. You know, as a medical student, um, orthopedic trauma was was most exciting for me. I, I loved watching uh, fractures get fixed and participating in that. And still, through residency, I love fixing fractures and it was especially open fractures. Those were those were my favorite types of cases. But um, I also like variety, and I can't really see myself doing the same thing over and over again. So there are certain specialties that are uh, specific to. Um, a type of skill. So like arthroplasty, uh, you're just doing knee replacements, hip replacements all the time. For sports, you know, a lot of what you're doing is, is scoping. Um, and then for trauma, you're just fixing fractures all the time. And I know that I like variety. I get, I get kind of bored easily. That's just my personality type. 
Um, so I wanted something that wasn't uh, skill set specific, but I wanted a specialty that was more specific to a certain body part um, and then and keep uh, keep my general trauma skills up. So by doing foot and ankle surgery, you know, I decided that when I was the second year, I, was, I got interested in it. I didn't really make the decision until third year, but on my second year rotation, um, I got to do a lot. And I think that also affects your decision is the first rotation you're on that you actually get to do a lot automatically becomes more fun. Um, so I got to do a lot. I got to do a lot of uh, a lot of variety. So I was fixing ankle fractures. I was doing fusions, um, scopes, and uh, occasionally we would do replacements. And I figured, you know, I could I could have all that variety um, as my specialty. And I could still do fractures all over the body. So I still do hip fractures. I still do some upper extremity fractures, uh, femur fractures, tibia fractures. Um, so that's that's kind of when and why I decided. Yeah, I, I always liked the idea of working with athletes. So I was always kind of interested in sports. Um, but what I'll say is, no matter what fellowship you do, uh, if you don't want to be super specialized, you don't have to. Like I, right. my practice is, pretty much like 60% general, 40% sports right now. Um, I do more carpal tunnels than I do knee scopes. Uh, it's just, it, I like it that way. I like having the variety of cases. Um, it's, I, th I think it's fun to me, especially if you get good at it. It's, it's fun to do. Um, plus it's tough to build like a pure elective practice in your specific field, unless you're at a tertiary referral center where you have other people to kind of feed you that stuff. But for me, I'm the only surgeon in my hospital. There's no way I could sustain a practice only doing sports medicine cases. Like it just, it's not feasible. So um, I'm kind of a generalist, partly by want, but mostly by need. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think uh, the good things about sports medicine uh, if you're doing pure sports is that it's mostly elective, right? Um, I think athletes are a special type of patient population in that, like take, for example, trauma, you're taking someone who's probably at 10%, 5% capacity, and you're trying to get them to what 50, 60, 70% capacity most of the time, the hip fracture with an athlete, you're taking someone who's like 90%, trying to get them back to 99% or hundred percent, right? So it's a different level. It's a different kind of sophistication to it. Um, I also like scopes. I liked playing video games. So that was fun too. Um, but it's more than scopes. I mean, there's a lot to, to sports. Like I do shoulder replacements. I do carpal tunnels, fractures, hip fractures, all that kind of stuff. Uh, keeps me entertained. Keeps me, keeps me going. Uh, but yeah, I, I figured it out. I figured it out probably after my trauma rotation because that was the second most fun to me, but uh, I didn't want the hours associated with it. I didn't want the call associated with it. Um, so then I decided to go with more of a, kind of like the idea of having an elective practice. Yeah, I mean, I haven't matched yet, but I'm gonna do shoulder surgery. Um, I, I think it's like Jane Mo said, you're really actually heavily influenced by the people that you run into or the early rotations that you have. So. A couple of people that are strong personalities who I'd want to grow up to be like, you know, 20 years from now, and they're both uh, shoulder surgeons. And uh, so that's weighed me a little bit. I uh, enjoyed the surgeries. And um, I personally like the idea of being able to take uh, care of the full spectrum of age groups, excluding pediatrics. So if something like shoulder, shoulder, elbow surgery, you can take care of athletes um, all the way up to, you know, 85, 95 year olds, and each shoulder replacements, their arthroplasty, things like that. So I think it, like Jay and most said, it opens you up to a whole variety of 
procedures and variability without locking you in too much to doing the same case over and over again. Not that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I would never do trauma because the thing I value the most is a predictable lifestyle so yeah. that I can organize my life. And uh, you have to figure out what you like. There are people that are the exact opposite of me. There's a girl in our program. She loves trauma. It's the only thing she could think about ever doing. She would never do anything else. But she loves that, like, you know, fault of the wall, crazy life where you come in and whatever time and whatever and do. So uh, you got to figure out what you like. Yeah, shoulders interesting because it's one of the newer specialties. Um, what, I like that too. You know, what set set that apart from sports? Uh, I think just arthroplasty is getting more voluminous and more complex. Everyone keeps saying a reverse is a forgiving procedure. I've heard that expression like a thousand times. Um, so obviously it is going to be somewhat easier or it's should say easier. But the, yeah, exactly. Like says, oh yeah, anyone can do it. Yeah. The problem is they're not, people don't see their own issues down the line, right? That's the problem with all of orthopedics though, is you often don't see your own complications. Someone else ends up seeing them. But uh, I think that just the amount of, the amount and the rate at which shoulder surgeries, especially arthroplasty is going up, um is gonna show that there's need for shoulder specific surgeons more so than guys that are really really good at doing other things in other joints too I, I think the variability is good also um it's like anything else it's like having traumatologists and foot and ankle surgeons doing ankle fractures you can put four well-experienced people on the stage and argue about the deltoid ligament for an hour and learn a lot I mean, this the whole same thing if you put it to that right so if you put a someone who does cartilage preservation, sports surgery, and shoulder arthroplasty on stage, you can learn a lot by listening to the two of them argue. So I think uh, I think there's value to that too. Yeah. I don't That's know. how I learned the most actually. I mean, there's a lot of other specialties, obviously, right? Like peds, hand, spine, like, you know, you can, you, there's something for everyone in this field. So yeah, you'll find it, what you like. It really depends on your personality and what you like to treat. Um, but there's definitely something for anyone, any, all sorts of personalities fit. You can also change and change things a lot as you go through time. There's no like rule that you have to do what you're doing forever. Like I said, um, doing more carpal tunnels than these scopes. Yeah, we got a we got a guy who was fellowship trained with Andrews, sports guy. Uh, basically, switched to being a shoulder surgeon only. He did nothing other than shoulder surgery for like 20 years. Then he switched jobs, and the new job where he's the head of sports medicine said, "You're going to have to do some of the sports stuff that comes in." So he started doing some of the skills and stuff again. Now he's a son's team doctor. So he does a lot of sports medicine, you know, and a little bit. So I mean, it's up and down as far as. I think your job dictates your practice a lot more than your fellowship dictates your practice. So, and what you want to do. I mean, if you want to do like pure pediatrics, then you kind of have to have a job that's going to let you do pure pediatrics. You know, those are pretty limited jobs. But um, I think for most of the population, you end up doing whatever comes through your door for m most of it, at least, you know, stuff within your scope or whatever you feel comfortable. Like, it, like Jay's doing hip fractures, you know, that's way above the foot or the ankle. I want to get my two cents in before we quit, just because I think it's really important. It's really, 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 if I could argue, the most important thing is to be disciplined and focused on the stage you're at right now. A lot of the stuff we're talking about is not relevant to you. And even though it's exciting and it hopefully one day will be relevant, you got to try to focus less on that and devote less mental attention to that and worry more about your test scores and your, your research right now and matching and then once you've matched you worry about being a really good resident and learning how to do surgery and then once that's done you worry about the job that you're going to get it all you know what i mean like if you don't have the discipline and the mental focus to do that then you can't think about steps four five and six before you've done steps one two and three so make sure you nail steps one two and three first because not 
that's not a play on the exams. Just make sure you do a good job with where you're at, because otherwise there's no point in worrying about the rest of this stuff. And I'd say, to add to that, I'd say make sure this is something that you really want to do because it's a huge time commitment and it's a huge sacrifice in your personal life. Like you're basically sacrificing one of the prime decades of your life for the job. So be 100% sure that this is something you're actually going to want to do um, before you you know start putting that time commitment in. Because there's a lot of jobs that will keep you satisfied, make you money, uh, keep you happy. Uh, you know, outside of orthopedics too. So you got to have a pretty compelling reason, at least in my opinion, you have to have a pretty compelling reason to want to do it. Um, so just, you know, that's a self-reflection thing. Make sure there's something you want. I think it's the greatest specialty in the world. And uh, I agree. I think uh, I wouldn't do another job. Yeah, I think it's cool that you four are wanting to do it. And that's about it. So thanks for showing up, everyone. I uh, appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank you for everyone. having us. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. Good luck, y'all. See you guys. Thank you. See ya. And that'll do it to this week. Thank you for everyone who joined in on this podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Uh, if you like what you're listening to and want to hear any of our other episodes, you could do so at our website, orthotalkpod.com. Similarly, we have a poll out on Twitter right now on whether or not we should change our name to Ortho Voice Podcast. Give us a vote. Let us know what you think. If you want to get in touch with us and let us know, you can do so at Twitter, or sorry, on Twitter at OrthoTalkPod, or email us, theorthopodcast at gmail.com. If you want to catch the video of this, you can do so on the YouTube channel, just YouTube, OrthoTalkPodcast, you'll find it there. Hope you guys are enjoying it. Uh, We'll have more for you next week. Happy Memorial Day to everyone, and thank you guys for the opportunity.